Almost four months into the war on Gaza, the Israeli spin machine reaps the rewards of misinformation, deflecting audiences away from stories it doesn't want told. The New York Times has trouble within over its coverage of what really happened on October 7th. And how historical memory in Germany and the residues of guilt limit what can or cannot be said about Israel. At a time when journalists and news audiences should have been focusing on the International Court of Justice's historic ruling last week that Israel is potentially guilty of genocide in the Gaza Strip, a different story started making headlines. That was by design, Israel's. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, was established in 1949 to help Palestinian refugees. According to an Israeli intelligence dossier, which just happened to be made public in the wake of the ICJ ruling, 12 staff members at the agency took part in the October 7th attacks against Israelis. On the back of that news, multiple countries, including the US, UK and Canada, all pulled their funding from the relief agency. Apart from the sheer cruelty of defunding a humanitarian organization at a time when Palestinians needed most, what is telling about this story is how many Western governments and news outlets still take stories based on Israeli intelligence at face value. Even when, time and time again, that so-called intelligence proves to be nothing more than disinformation. On the day the International Court of Justice issued its seismic ruling that the war on Gaza amounts to a plausible case of genocide, Israeli spin doctors faced a challenge. How could they deflect the global media's attention away from that story? By sharing, on the same day the ICJ ruling came out, an intelligence dossier with their American allies that then becomes big news alleging that 12 employees at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency took part in Hamas's attacks on October 7th. That Israel has now shared its intelligence claiming UN aid workers actually took part in the Hamas attack. The agency, known by its clunky acronym, UNRWA, is vital in saving the lives of Palestinians. And what did the American government make of Israel's allegations? What it usually does. We haven't had the ability to investigate them ourselves, but they are highly, highly credible. Its officials took Israeli intelligence sources at their word, the same way they did with the Hamas beheaded baby story. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. And again with the trope that the hospitals in Gaza were Hamas command centers in disguise. Hamas continues to use hospitals as locations for its command posts. They take unproven, dubious Israeli allegations and legitimize them. So here we go again. So it suggests that somebody wanted to change the subject. And we don't know who, we don't know exactly how it leaked, how it got to the media. But at a moment when the International Court of Justice had issued a devastating ruling against Israel, finding it plausibly committing genocide, in Gaza. So you have this Israeli dossier, it's now out, able for all of you to read. Suddenly the media is focusing on the complicity of, of UNRWA staff in the October 7th attack. We don't see that people are talking about the implementation of the ICJ decision. We don't see that 
news outlets are labeling Israel the genocidal state that it is, covering, monitoring, checking to see whether Israel's actually preventing genocide as it was ordered to do. And instead, most of the coverage is now about these accusations. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency employs 13,000 people in Gaza. The aid they provide civilians, hospitals, schools, and elsewhere in the Strip has never been more essential. One would think that with the Israeli government accused of starving Gazans to death, political players would watch their words on the relief agency. This right-wing lobbyist did not just a few weeks ago at a meeting at the Knesset. The sourcing of the initial allegation that 12 UNRWA workers took part in the October 7th attacks came in part from confessions coerced out of Palestinian prisoners through interrogations that have been known to include torture. What specifically is the evidence? I think that's what the public wants to know. Well, there is an abundance of evidence based on investigation of, uh, of uh, Hamas uh, terrorists that have been arrested and they've provided uh, a lot of information. The fact that you take 12 cases, as you claim, and try to link UNRWA uh, to the Palestinian resistance is already indicative of how Western governments are exhibiting total identification with Israel that goes beyond simple complicity. Israel has managed to take a very tenuous argument and feed it into Western governments who have happily obliged to defund a central organization that is so central to the ability of Palestinians in Gaza to receive humanitarian aid. And that stands in contrast to, for example, the response of the U.S. government to Israel. We have abundant evidence of war crimes. Nobody's been prosecuted. Biden continues the $3.8 billion in annual military assistance to Israel. What's behind this distinction? You know, why does UNRWA, when it does the right thing, get its funds suspended, and Israel, when it does the wrong thing, keeps the funding coming? There is no doubt that from the perspective of Israel, the ability to limit UNRWA uh, will be uh, beneficial. Now, we need to look at the reactions of other states and other players which are receiving that information. It will be a complete and thorough and transparent investigation. So thus far, from the reaction of states and international organizations, including the United Nations, the evidence seemed to have some compelling force. At the same time, we are under the fog of war. We need to be skeptic about any piece of evidence we hear. There was more fog to come, courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. Three days after the UNRWA story broke, the New York-based paper put out a piece, again based on Israeli intelligence, saying that one in ten UNRWA workers had quote-unquote links to Hamas. The report did not specify just what those links were. Carrie Keller-Lynn co-authored that story. It turns out she's an American who volunteered for the Israeli military and is seen here linked to one of the army's spokespersons. After her piece was published, the list of countries pulling their money out of UNRWA grew. We asked the journal about its story and its co-author. It declined to comment. The problem with these types of allegations is that they adopt an Israeli narrative 
without questioning or second-guessing that Israeli narrative. And Israel casts a very wide net for who it terms to be or who it deems to be a member of Hamas. And we've seen this with the statements that they've made that there are no innocents in Gaza. Uh, this is from as high up as the president. And so for them um, to make such an assertion should be something that is questioned or challenged. The Wall Street Journal basically published unedited an Israeli intelligence dossier. And it treated it as fact and that 10% of UNRWA staff were somehow linked, whatever that means, to Hamas. Now, that's a very fuzzy term. And the New York Times has said, well, UNRWA doesn't even claim to have the capacity to vet its staff. Once a year, it's been handing a list of UNRWA staff to the Israeli government. And so were they asleep at the switch? And why, therefore, does UNRWA get punished, and therefore the Palestinian civilian population of Gaza get punished, when Israel didn't do its job? It's been one week since the ICJ ruled that Israel must prevent acts of genocide, punish incitement, and facilitate aid to civilians. Taking those points in order, the assault on Gaza goes on, killing Palestinians. Settler organizations are still inciting Israelis, saying openly that they have their eyes on the Strip. As for the aid, right-wing Israelis have been blocking some of it at the Egyptian border, and Israeli soldiers have stood by and let them and Israeli spokespersons keep smearing a humanitarian relief agency. Because Hamas uses UNRWA's status as a UN agency to launder its talking points and propaganda. Israel and its Western allies know propaganda when they see it. How to use it to pull funding from a lifeline for Palestinians starved of food and water. It's an axis of complicity, aided and abetted at times by the fourth estate. Israel has been able to shift that conversation, but it's only able to do so because it has these editorial boards in line with it, uh, complicit with it in terms of framing. And we, we have seen this throughout the war, stories that have been fed into Western media um, that uh, goes along with Israeli policy of uh, legitimating its own actions in Gaza, deflecting from its own massacres, and creating the conditions for the perpetuating of the caring war. And this is where we have to step back and really question, is this the type of international order that we want? Maybe Israel should look inward and ask themselves, are we really following the letter of the law when we drop the equivalent of two Hiroshima bombs on the Gaza Strip within one month? When this is the largest number of children deaths in the 21st century, when we've seen more journalists killed by Israeli bombs in Gaza than we saw during the entire Second World War, maybe they should start looking to those things rather than trying to smear UNRWA. A story that emerged in the early days of the war was of Israeli allegations of sexual violence by Hamas during its attack on October 7th. The accuracy of a New York Times report on those allegations is now being called into question, and Minakshi Ravi is here with more. 
numerous outlets have published investigations into Israel's accusations that Hamas systematically used rape and sexual assault against victims on October 7th. It narrated horrifically what the Times called a pattern of rape, mutilation and extreme brutality against women during the attacks on Israel. Many critics of mainstream coverage on Israel and Palestine called out the article for alleged inaccuracies and questionable sourcing. Publicly, the Times stood by its reporting. But according to the US investigative outlet, The Intercept, in the NYT's newsroom, a, quote, furious internal debate was taking place. The Intercept has reported that an episode of one of the Times' most popular podcasts, The Daily, that was supposed to be an audio retelling of the December article, was put on hold, and some editorial staff shared the criticisms made of the original report. One example, the family of an Israeli woman killed on October 7th, whose story was the main case study in the piece. They've denounced the article. The Times reported that she had been raped. Her relatives said they had no reason to believe that. Some other sources the Times used have had their reliability seriously questioned, including by the Israeli media, no less. That podcast has yet to be released. And according to The Intercept, the producers, quote, find themselves in a jam, run a version that hews closely to the previously published story and risk republishing serious mistakes, or publish a heavily toned down version, raising questions about whether the paper still stands by the original report. Thanks, Mina. Israel's war on Gaza and the way it has been covered has shed some light on the limits on freedom of speech in Western democracies, what some people have come to call the Palestine exception. Nowhere is that more evident than in Germany. Historical guilt over the extermination of six million Jews during the Holocaust has transformed into open-ended support for the state of Israel. It goes to the heart of the way Germany wants to see itself, what the government calls Stadt Raison the state's reason to exist. It is also used to justify Germany's sponsorship of the slaughter in Gaza, from which its weapons industry benefits. The same pro-Israel consensus reigns in Germany's news media and in the widespread suppression by news outlets and the authorities of dissenting voices there. The Listening Post's Johanna Husnow on the origins and consequences of the Palestine exception to free speech in Germany. Germany's relationship with Israel is unlike that of any other country. It's a relationship that goes beyond loyalty and support. Ensuring Israel's security and existence is part of what Germans call Staatsräson, the country's raison d'être. Israel's Sicherheit as deutsche Staatsräson war nie eine Lehrformel. Germany's past, the genocide of almost six million European Jews during the Holocaust, informs every aspect of the country's public and political discourse around Israel. For many Germans, Israel is above reproach. And deshalb sind die Vorwürfe, die gegen Israel da erhoben werden, absurd. The outright support for Israel in Germany constitutes a sort of a comforting thought that okay, the. the the people that we as Germans oppressed and killed and treated so badly historically now have their kind of own state and everything is fine. It's not so much that Israel is supported in Germany because we come to terms with its past, but it's a shortcut for, for not really coming to terms with our past. When Germany categorizes Israel's national security as their reason of state, they 
essentially wanted to solve their problem of being described as the original anti-Semites of the world. They want to put the past behind them. So Germany, instead of listening to their actual Jewish citizens, instead of fighting anti-Semitism in a way that protects all Jewish people, what it has done instead is take a vehemently and staunch pro-Israel stance where they essentially can, can do no wrong. In this atmosphere of unwavering political support for Israel, German media outlets have also shown pro-Israel bias in their reporting. This is reflected in the one-sidedness of talk show debates. The Hamas terrorists have deliberately decided to civilists and for Bild, the biggest newspaper in Germany, Hamas freed Israeli hostages, while Israel freed Palestinian terrorists. And mainstream outlets from ARD, the public broadcaster, to media conglomerate Axel Springer, have issued strict guidance to their journalists on this story. ARD sent an internal memo to its journalists where in it it states that um, if any civilian deaths take place it has to be stated as these civilians are being used as human shields and this was provocated by Hamas. Es kann natürlich auch daran liegen, dass die Hamas darauf setzt, dass viel Zivilbevölkerung im Norden des Gazastreifens verbleibt und dann sozusagen als menschliches Schutzschild wirkt. And if that's the only image that Germans see then the public are not going to understand the actual scale of this war and just how much violence has been inflicted on an innocent civilian population. Axel Springer has like support for Israel written into its work contract. So if you work as a journalist for one of their outlets, say Bild Zeitung, which is the biggest newspaper in the German media landscape, or Die Welt, you are kind of committed already from the get-go, regardless of what your personal views might be, to report in a pro-Israeli way. What that often translates to is literally outright support of Israel government policies. Bild newspaper is the most widely read newspaper in Germany. And its journalistic standards if one can call them that, are pretty unspeakable. Then you have Die Welt, which is slightly more highbrow, but ideologically it's cut from the same cloth. And then you also have Der Spiegel, which recently ran an article about Greta Thunberg. You can only call it a hit piece, really. Just this, this absurd personal attack on her because she has recently been quite vocal about her support for Palestine. We tried to speak to ARD and Axel Springer, but neither outlets granted us an interview or a statement. And those in Germany who go against the grain on this story risk being blacklisted or sidelined. Journalists challenging the prevailing narrative in newsrooms have been fired. Exhibitions, workshops and conferences in the cultural sphere have been cancelled or delayed. Peaceful protests have been either banned, criminalised or violently repressed. Now, Germany has one of Europe's largest Palestinian diasporas, but it's also become one of the most censored places for anyone who expresses solidarity with Palestinians or anyone who speaks out against Israel's war crimes in Gaza. 
There's an increasing climate of censorship in Germany in the last um, five to six weeks. A climate of kind of Botox, McCarthyism, it's really quite intense. Kofis have been forbidden in schools, They're like symbols of the Palestinian flag, symbols of Palestinian identity have been forbidden. Anything that can basically be interpretable as anti-Semitic, and that's a very sort of like wide range of things for in the German society, has been kind of damned. Gewalt und Hass auf den Straßen, Islamisten fordern das Kalifat und sind sich mit Rechts- und Linksextremisten nur in einem einig, Israel und die Juden sind an allem schuld. I don't believe Germany has come to terms with its past, because what they're doing is stifling conversation, stifling any progress or any sort of critical discourse. And now because the spotlight has been shone on Germany and, and German discourse, more and more people are realizing that this is not fighting anti-Semitism. This is attacking Palestinians. Essentially, Palestinian existence is offensive to many in Germany. That's the simplest way to put it, really because Palestinians interfere with this utopian narrative that, that the Holocaust was at least slightly balanced out by the foundation of Israel. In terms of the moral and cultural identity that Germany promotes of itself, it's hard for Palestinians to find a place which doesn't just involve demonization or erasure. The severity of the suppression of pro-Palestinian speech in Germany has sparked an international backlash, which is producing results. In December, Berlin City Council announced it would stop funding artists who refuse to abide by a definition of anti-Semitism that includes criticism of Israel. In response, more than 500 artists, among them winners of the prestigious Turner Prize and a Nobel laureate, backed a movement calling on creatives to stop working with institutions funded by the German state. Berlin's authorities have now scrapped their policy. Meanwhile, the tone from the government is also shifting. German's foreign minister has called on Israel to comply with the International Court of Justice order to prevent genocide in Gaza. But actions speak louder than words, and as long as Berlin keeps sending bombs to Tel Aviv and curbs on dissent remain in place, so too will concerns about German complicity in another genocide. And finally, little-known fun historical fact, unless it ends up with you being found complicit in a genocide. The UN Genocide Convention was passed in 1948. Then, it took the United States almost 40 years to sign on to it. The U.S. president back then, Harry Truman, wanted the U.S. to be a signatory, but Congress refused. It did not want the U.S. government to be subject to the rulings of a court outside its jurisdiction. The Senate finally voted to make the U.S. a signatory in 1987, which means if Israel, backed by all that U.S. funding and political support, is found guilty of a genocide in Gaza the American president could well be found complicit. The senator who sponsored that piece of legislation in 1987 represented the state of Delaware, Joe Biden. Search as we might, we cannot find a single reference to that in the U.S. mainstream media, but we'll keep looking. See you next time here at The Listening Post.